Well, thanks, Lieutenant Dixon, for the opportunity to, to share a little bit about what's going on in this theater and why I'm so delighted to be in the position that I'm in as a Navy Admiral and Commander of Joint Force Command Naples and Commander of Naval Forces Europe and Naval Forces Africa. This is really uh, my dream job after uh, 37 years of active duty service. I'm a 1981 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and the reason that I love this job so much is because all of my roots are European roots. My family hails from Scotland and from the research we've done there are generations and generations of leather boot makers uh, up north all Fogos with 1G or 2Gs. My paternal great-grandfather actually worked on the Firth of Forth Bridge, which was a revolutionary bridge uh, built in the late 1800s that joins Edinburgh with the south of Scotland. And uh, he was an engineer, but I don't know what that means. I don't know if he was, uh, uh, took the blueprints and actually made the bridge come to life. But at any rate, he died at a very young age of pneumonia. And I suspect that was probably related to the pretty harsh conditions in that very difficult environment up there as they're trying to build this bridge took a long time. So he left my grandfather as an orphan. He joined uh, an organization. It was a paramilitary organization in, in uh, Scotland, uh, the uh, 39th uh, Midlothian Border Horse Guards. And I think they made a man out of him. So he decided that uh, at that point in his life, he was going to look for uh, a different kind of future and a different uh, uh, prosperity. So he immigrated to Canada. And uh, he went to Winnipeg, Manitoba. But at the time, it wasn't long after his arrival and he got a job in a bank and uh, I've got a picture of him as a young banker where he's wearing a, a very nice suit and it looked like he'd been successful. Uh, he was apparently good with numbers according to my dad and uh, had done well in this bank and World War I broke out. And he was compelled to go back and defend the Commonwealth in the First World War. So he joined the Canadian military. He became a private in the Winnipeg Grenadiers. And he fought uh, uh, for the majority of the war from 1914 to 1918 in the trenches. And by the end of the war, uh, he completed the war with the rank of brevet captain, which means uh, temporary captain. So that, that meant that he went from private uh, to 03. And I have a photo of him in my office uh, coming out of Buckingham Palace, where at the end of the war, he received the military cross from King George. And I have the military cross displayed next to that, and that's a, that's a very distinguished and high order in the British hierarchy of awards. And both uh, my father and I were very proud of that when I'd hear these stories growing up. My mother's uh, grandfather, also in the Canadian Forces, fought in both the First and Second World Wars and wrote war diaries uh, at each period of time in his life. Those are also in my bookshelf in my office. And uh, I share some of those stories from those diaries when uh, I'm able to do memorial services around Europe for the various campaigns that took place in both the First and the Second World War. My dad, uh, like his father, became a Winnipeg Grenadier. Uh, his dad took him down, he and his brother, to the recruiting station and signed him up in World War II. My father was commissioned in England in 1941. He came across the channel in 1944 with the Canadian 4th Infantry Division in July of 1944. So he got into the fight uh, a little over a month after the invasion of Normandy, and he saw some pretty intensive uh, combat as he worked his way through 
uh, Normandy and France up into Belgium and into Holland and into Germany where about uh, a year and uh, a few months later he demobilized and went back to Canada. My dad stayed in the uh, Canadian Armed Forces for 32 years and uh, back in the late 1950s he and my mom received orders to uh, the military base, the NATO military base in Rheindahlen in Germany. And uh, that's where I was born, at uh, the Land Component Command Headquarters in Mönchengladbach. So I tell my, uh, my German friends, Ich bin ein Mönchengladbacher, and that's apparently the correct pronunciation. But I was born into NATO, and so uh, that, uh, I jokingly say, was my first NATO assignment as, uh, as a newborn. And then my parents went back to Canada, and uh, my father received an assignment uh, to uh, Combat Development Command at Fort Belvoir, Virginia in 1968. And both he and my mother loved being in the Washington area, and they loved being around Americans, and uh, he retired down there, and that's how I became an American. And so I was very fortunate that uh, when I received my citizenship as a naturalized American in 1977, just a couple of months later, I found myself standing tall in uh, Tecumseh Court taking the oath of office as a plebe at the United States Naval Academy. And uh, it's been a great ride ever since. Sure, uh, I decided uh, during my plebe year that you know I liked chemistry. I became a chemistry major, and that made me a great candidate uh, for the nuclear power program. And uh, there were several uh, in my company uh, who competed uh, for the nuclear power program. And we had interviews with Admiral Rickover. We were one of the the second to last class, I think, in 1981 that actually had an interview with Admiral Rickover. And uh, that was a, an incredible experience to see uh, this iconic man uh, and four-star admiral who uh, started and created um, the nuclear navy in our country. And uh, I don't know that uh, we could reproduce that if we had to start over again today. I mean, it was uh, the sheer energy and will uh, and drive of uh, Admiral Rickover that created such a powerful and effective and lethal submarine force that we have today, both in our ballistic missile force and our SSGNs and in our attack submarines that we see in this theater. So I was uh, uh, offered uh, uh, a chance to, to enter the uh, submarine program, nuclear power, and I went out to uh, my first ship, which was the USS Sea Devil. And, uh, Sea Devil was in Charleston, South Carolina, and we had an incredible wardroom. Uh, one of my first COs was Commander Rich Meese, who later retired as uh, Admiral Rich Meese, the four-star commander of STRATCOM. Uh, terrific leader and just incredibly intelligent and uh, an incredible tactician. He taught me a lot when I was growing up in over three years in that first assignment on the submarine. Uh, other uh, notable individuals on board we actually had uh, five flag officers from that wardroom. Uh, Admiral John Byrd, uh, Admiral Malcolm Phages, uh, Admiral Meese, uh, Admiral Bill French, and I was the runt of the litter. Our uh, Royal Navy Exchange Officer during my last months on board was uh, Admiral Stanhope, who became, he was Commander Stanhope there uh, then, and he became the first Sea Lord. And then uh, one of the guys I stood watch with as a Lieutenant JG on the mid-watch was uh, Quartermaster Second Class Ricky West, who became our Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. So you think about that, and that's an incredible mixture of young submariners uh, who went off to do uh, lots of different things. 
And uh, I think we all took uh, great lessons learned from Admiral Meese, and that was uh, it's not about the uh, who gets the battle E, it's about the, the ship that does the mission uh, the best. It was a great learning experience, as I said, for over three years before I went off to uh, my graduate education experience, and that took me uh, to the Olmsted program and uh, to the University of Strasbourg in France, where I studied for two years before going back as a department head. And I was a department head on a, an SSBN, uh, an older boat, 30 years old, but uh, she actually became the uh, Battle E winner in uh, Subron 16 uh, before I left, and that was USS Mariano G. Vallejo. Uh, two great crews and uh, very focused people. I learned a lot about how our SSBN operations uh, occur and did five strategic deterrent patrols. Uh, because I'd done the Olmsted program, I spent a couple of years out of the nuke pipeline, uh, I called the detailer and said, hey, I'd prefer not to go to a shore tour, I'd prefer to go right to my XO tour, and I'd screen for XO, and they said, okay, I was really surprised, and uh, I went to a wonderful ship, a uh, class of its own, SSN 671, USS Narwhal. Best thing about the Narwhal was its commanding officer, uh, Commander Ray Lincoln, Horatio A. Lincoln, Jr., uh, what a guy. Uh, just an incredible uh, officer, an incredible submariner, a wonderful person, he carried about, cared about people, and uh, he was a great tactician and did great things with Narwhal, who won the battle as well. We deployed to the Mediterranean, and uh, while Ray was leading us around the Med, uh, he earned for the ship uh, the Hookham Award from uh, Sixth Fleet, which is the best ASW platform out there. And I'll tell you, when I came back uh, as the Sixth Fleet commander in my first months on the job, you know, I asked the question, hey, uh, where's the Hookham Award? I want to give it to... Uh, one of the destroyers for supreme uh, performance in anti-submarine warfare. And the uh, chief of staff, uh, Admiral Cat O'Connor, went out of the room. He was gone for a very long time. And he came back uh, uh, a long time later and he told me, uh, uh, sir, I'm sorry, but uh, we don't have the Hookham Award anymore. I go, what? And uh, you gotta be kidding me. And he goes, nope. Uh, I think the last Russian submarine that we had in the Mediterranean was around the year 2001, 2002. And of course, this was in uh, 2015. And so I said, well, you can just go ahead and regenerate that instruction and that award, and he did. And uh, we gave that award to a, a destroyer skipper later that month. And uh, we've reconstituted it because there's a lot of ASW activity in the Mediterranean right now. The Russians have put uh, six boats uh, in the Black Sea or the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, they have frequently shot the caliber missile. Uh, these are the new hybrid Kilo-class submarines, and we need to be able to keep tabs on. So that, uh, that award is very important for recognition for sustained superior performance in the undersea domain. And it's actually, it should be a goal and an objective for every skipper that has a towed array or every submarine that's out there or every uh, Marine Patrol aircraft that's on patrol because we have awarded it to CTF-67 units before for their sustained superior performance in ASW. And uh, so I went from uh, being on board USS Narwhal, who was the Hookham Award winner, uh, back to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and then off to Washington uh, for tours on the Navy staff and the OSD staff before going to command. Uh, command was great. I was uh, CO of USS Oklahoma City. Uh, for three years, we had uh, three deployments, uh, uh, Southern Caribbean uh, counter-drug uh, deployment, 
and then a North Atlantic deployment, and then an Arctic deployment. Um, the ship was uh, just coming out of the yards when I got there. Uh, she hadn't been to sea in a long time, so I went recruiting uh, around the submarine force, and I found uh, three of the most incredible department heads uh, that I've ever met who helped me to uh, the Battle E winner in 2000 and the Arleigh Burke Fleet Trophy winner uh, in 2000 for the most improved ship in the Atlantic Fleet. And that year it was uh, uh, Oklahoma City that won it on the East Coast and the carrier Abe Lincoln that won it on the West Coast. So by comparison, uh, a pretty small unit compared to that, that aircraft carrier. And we were really proud of that. Uh, gave me an opportunity to springboard to uh, command of Submarine Squadron 6 in Norfolk and then Submarine Group 8 here in Naples for my first tour in Naples, followed by my second tour in Naples as the commander of uh, Sixth Fleet and Strike Force NATO. And now, as I said, I pinch myself every day. My dream job here is commander of Joint Force Command Naples, uh, commander of Naval Forces Europe and Naval Forces Africa. Well, sure, uh, I'd be delighted. And I do call them the, uh, the five big rocks in my public affairs and STRATCOM. People say, sir, you should say focus areas. But the reason I call them big rocks is because it's heavy lifting for the team here. Uh, these are all very uh, challenging areas that we must, we have no choice, we must be uh, both uh, subject matter experts and experts in execution at the strategic and tactical level. And when I say the tactical level, I'm talking about you know, the flying machines, the floating machines, and the machines that submerge and operate in the undersea domain have got to operate with precision and excellence throughout this theater. And this theater goes from, you know, the North Pole down to the uh, Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and from 45 west in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean all the way up to the shores of the Crimea with uh, the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the uh, Baltic Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Black Sea uh, and parts of the uh, Indian Ocean as, as, as part of our theater of operations. So I'll tell you what the five big rocks are for Naval Forces Europe and Africa, and then we'll talk a little bit about them. Uh, first and foremost, theater anti-submarine warfare. Uh, second, integrated air and missile defense. Uh, third, uh, forward deployed Naval Forces. Uh, fourth, countering vital extremism. And fifth, enhancing African maritime security. And of course, I've talked earlier in Theodore ASW about the importance of uh, the undersea domain. I've used the term in some of my writings that we are in a fourth battle of the Atlantic right now. And that's not just the Atlantic. That's all those bodies of water I've talked about. Uh, the Arctic, the Baltic, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, and the approaches to the Straits of Gibraltar and the GIUK gap and the North Atlantic. Uh, the activity in submarine warfare has increased uh, significantly uh, since the first time uh, I came back to Europe and since the Cold War. The Russian Federation Navy has continued to pump rubles into the undersea domain and they have a very effective uh, submarine force. We talked a little bit about the Kilos and their ability to launch the caliber missile from any of these seas that I talked about and their ability to range any of the capitals of Europe. Hence, the importance of anti-submarine warfare. Uh, it's a skill set that can atrophy. As you saw in my uh, discussion earlier, we allowed uh, the Hookham Award to just go away. And uh, it's an award, but again, it's a goal, it's an objective. You want to be excellent in anti-submarine warfare, so we brought it back for that reason. And we train to a very high level. Um, 
when uh, I would discuss ASW uh, as the deputy director of N35 in the Pentagon with Admiral Greenard, he would often say, uh, hey, look, uh, uh, the best way to find another submarine is not necessarily with another submarine. That's like a needle in a haystack. ASW is a combined arms operation, and let no one forget that. Uh, it starts with good intelligence, and from that intelligence, uh, you obtain queuing. You find an area where you're going to go and operate in, and uh, you may start looking for uh, an adversarial submarine or in an exercise, another submarine, using a marine patrol aircraft. And uh, if they're really good like our P-8s, and our P-8s have become very popular, the Norwegians are going to buy them, the Brits are going to buy them, then that aircraft will queue or find the submarine and localize it and then bring in other assets. Another way to find a submarine is with a surface ship with a towed array. Very, very effective, especially with our multifunction towed arrays and especially with our multi-mission, four deployed naval forces, four Burke-class destroyers that are in Rota, Spain. And I'm really proud of those guys and all the great work that they do. And then uh, ASW using the submarine as a platform against another submarine a very effective, lethal weapon uh, in the event that you need to use it, especially with our Mark 48 ADCAP torpedo. So theater ASW, big rock, and very important, and a combined arms game that involves all of us in the CNE, CNA, and Sixth Fleet Arena. Integrated air and missile defense. We have uh, the best um, anti-ballistic missile uh, in the world, and that is the SM-3. We have demonstrated it. Uh, twice in this theater in Formidable Shield uh, 15 and Formidable Shield 17, and we'll do it again in Formidable Shield uh, 19. And that SM-3 launched from uh, the uh, Arleigh Burke-class warships uh, is a bullet that hits another bullet at supersonic speed in space in the uh, upper tier. And uh, we are defending against... Uh, uh, any kind of malign influence or launch of Iranian ballistic missiles, uh, but it is a skill set that many navies in Europe uh, would like to have their uh, own indigenous capability. And so when we do these demonstrations, uh, it, we are not alone. Uh, Formidable Shield 15 and Formidable Shield 17 was uh, an incredible uh, coalition of the willing who came to the uh, range in the Hebrides off of the coast of Scotland uh, for a couple of weeks, and we did uh, many exercises in which uh, that flotilla was attacked by anti-ship cruise missiles, and allies and partners fired their own uh, defensive uh, weapons to protect the high-value unit that was looking for the ballistic missile uh, coming over the horizon. So tremendous success, part of what we do, and uh, a big reason for having those destroyers in uh, Rota, Spain. On four deployed naval forces in Europe, well, we couldn't do all the missions that uh, we do uh, without um, our four deployed forces in Europe. And, uh, and we couldn't do this without partners either. When I talk about missile defense, uh, let's not forget the incredible collaboration we get from our Romanian partners uh, with our uh, missile facility in Devicello, and uh, we are building another missile facility ashore just like it. It's like an Aegis-class uh, uh, ship ashore in uh, Regislova in Poland. Uh, our FDNF forces afloat are in Rota, Spain. Uh, we wouldn't be there if it weren't for the incredible generosity and relationship we have from our host nation in Spain. And uh, that is a port facility that is located 
uh, in an area that gives us access to the North Atlantic, to the Baltic, uh, to the Mediterranean. On countering violent extremism, this is something that we face every day. And uh, we see attacks throughout the European theater and the African theater and even in our own country in Canada. And uh, we defend forward against that. That's the reason we're here. We want to take that fight to the violent extremists and keep them on their heels and uh, keep them out of our own uh, sovereign countries. And when I say that, I mean all the countries of NATO and uh, the countries of North America that are part of NATO as well. Uh, the U.S. Navy continues to combat violent extremist organizations by dismantling uh, networks of uh, terrorist uh, organizations in Syria, Iraq, uh, Libya, and elsewhere. Um, for example, uh, as Sixth Fleet Commander when I was here, uh, the CNE, uh, CNA, and Sixth Fleet Forces had a major role in clearing uh, ISIS out of CERT. Qaddafi's old hometown. Uh, the United States Navy and Marine Corps provided some excellent uh, support from the air there. Uh, we've done a lot of work off the Somali coast and I think that's been very successful at tamping down piracy operations there to a bare minimum. Uh, carrier strike group operations were conducted here with Harry S. Truman most recently in the eastern Mediterranean and those strikes took place on ISIS targets in Iraq and Syria and have contributed to the demise of ISIS uh, but they're still there and there's still much work to be done, so we need to be vigilant. And uh, the concern is the spread of those ISIS elements that have been uh, dissociated from Iraq and Syria and potentially established bases elsewhere, either in Africa or, uh, worst case scenario, as uh, sleeper cells in Europe. So we are vigilant about that. Uh, the uh, Joint Force Command Naples Headquarters has stood up a new NATO Strategic Direction South hub. Uh, the purpose of the hub is uh, to assist our African partners who ask for help with uh, governance, establishment of uh, rule of law, and development. And certainly uh, there are problems that emanate from the region of the Sahara or the Sahel in Africa uh, in terms of trafficking in narcotics, trafficking in illegal weapons, and trafficking in humans uh, that uh, leads to a disruption of rule of law and governance. So our job in the hub is to try to connect, consult, and collaborate with uh, international organizations, NGOs, state and non-state actors, and people to try to build a better uh, uh, development plan uh, to create safe havens and to restore governance, jurisprudence, law enforcement, ethical law enforcement, and help eliminate corruption. That is a tall task, and this is going to be a long game. This is not going to happen in a year. It's going to be a decade or two before we take a dent out of this problem, uh, which leads to migration, which has pressurized uh, many of the countries in Europe, and you can see that in the headlines every day. So it's a very important part of what we do, and uh, there are elements of uh, the CNE and uh, CNA side that are involved in collaborating with the hub in my headquarters at JFC Naples. On uh, the final Big Rock Enhancing African Maritime Security, I've been doing this now in this theater since 2009 when I worked at SHAPE headquarters and I saw the Africa Partnership Station stand up. I saw the Express Series exercises. It's our signature series of exercises around Africa. We do Cutlass Express in East Africa, 
Uh, we do Phoenix Express in North Africa, and we do Obengami Saharan Express in the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa, all with the intent of enhancing the quality of uh, the, the maritime domain of our African partners. And since 2009 to present, uh, their progress has been like night and day. Uh, we have gone from uh, uh, a time when uh, the African partners either did not have the uh, facilities or the capacity in terms of ships uh, to go out and operate. Uh, they now have uh, uh, a robust uh, series of facilities, radars they can coordinate and collaborate across territorial lines. They have an agreement called the Yaoundé Code of Conduct in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, and they have vessels that can get underway and challenge uh, nefarious activity in the maritime and uh, counter the pirate activity that's taking place, whether it be in the Gulf of Guinea, a new surge there, or uh, uh, maintain the status quo where we have uh, beaten uh, piracy on the east coast of Africa off of Somalia. So very important, and this gives us an opportunity to relate to uh, our African partners and establish a relationship uh, with countries that uh, are interested and friendly uh, to NATO and to the United States when we are operating bilaterally with them. So I'm very proud of the uh, uh, African maritime security programs that we run uh, in CNE, CNA, and Sixth Fleet, and uh, I look forward to our Combined Force Maritime Commanders course here in December. Uh, where we will have many of the partners come up and join us in Naples and have a very robust discussion over the course of about four or five days about how we can improve uh, our African maritime security uh, even more in the future in 2019. This isn't just a, a Navy-only story when I talk about uh, the enhancement of African maritime security either. I should say that we have uh, other service partners who are here with us. We have. Uh, personnel who are permanently stationed here at CNECNA uh, from the United States Coast Guard, and they are subject matter experts when it comes to maritime security inside 12 uh, nautical miles from land, inside territorial waters. Uh, these officers and enlisted personnel are uh, part of the very fabric of uh, our Africa Partnership Station and our exercises that we do. For example, uh, currently ongoing Operation Junction Rain. Junction Rain is uh, uh, a way in which we offer uh, legal uh, uh, or law enforcement detachments to our African partners, uh, uh, small groups of uh, Coast Guard officers and Naval officers who are out deployed on uh, ships off the coast of Africa, advising and assisting on uh, illegal activity that is taking place in the territorial waters of those nations, such as illegal fishing activity, piracy activity, or other smuggling activity. So my hat's off to the United States Coast Guard and the support that they give us in this very important initiative.